0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we have with us author Samuel W. Mitchum, Jr., who has written over 40 books and great books, a lot of good books on World War II. And today we're covering a brand new book of his called The Death of Hitler's War Machine, The Final Destruction of the Wehrmacht. Sam, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I would like you, if you could, to share a little bit of your background with us, and then, uh, and then we'll go for it.
1: All right. Uh, well, I was born in Rouge, Louisiana. I uh, went to Northeast Louisiana University and uh, became an Army helicopter pilot at the end of the war and uh, Vietnam. And then uh, I stayed active in the Reserves, but I went uh, decided on an academic career and attended North Carolina State and uh, University of Tennessee and uh, uh, spent 20 years as a professor of geography and military history at uh, Henderson State, uh, Georgia Southern, and uh, University of Louisiana at Monroe. Uh, Stayed active in the Reserves. I'm a graduate of Command and General Staff College, which is a school for generals. And that that was a tough school, but I enjoyed it. Married two kids. You've written over 40 books, many of which were about World War II.
0: What made you decide to write The Death of Hitler's War Machine?
1: Well, I decided to do that years ago. Um, I was sitting in the National Archives looking for something very specific. And they sent me to an area they don't allow the general public in, and it was a big bay-type office. And there was a guy going frantically through the filing cabinets with his back to me. And I didn't really want to yell, hey, you. Uh, So I asked him, can't you find it? And uh, he was startled. He, He said, no, I can't. I asked him what he was looking for. And he said he wanted to find a copy of Hitler's last will and testament. And I asked him, is that here? And he said, well, we have a copy in this room, but we have an original in the vault, but nobody gets to see that. And uh, his name was Gerard Wagner. and we talked a while, and other people came in. We had a large bull session going, about eight, nine people, I guess. And uh, he disappeared for a while and came back, and he had gone to the vault and checked out one of the four original copies of Adolf Hitler's Last Will and Testament. Every signatory was dead within three days. You know, had the Fuhrer type. Adolf Hitler needed glasses, but he didn't want the German people to know it, so he had special typewriters made with large fonts so he could read it. Gerwig said, uh, put your nose to the paper and smell it. Uh, So I did, and... uh, the odor of the Führer bunker had permeated that paper. And with my eyes closed it, for just a second, I had the sensation that it was 1945 and I was in the Führer bunker. You could smell the smoke and the dankness and the darkness. And uh, it was a surreal moment. And I looked up from the uh, paper and uh, said to Georg, wow. And he looked at me and said, "Exactly, that's he." And uh, I figured I, I wanted to get around to uh, to writing that book at some point. and I finally, now that I'm retired from academia, I did so. and uh, it was it was fun. It was a good read. It was uh, really not a good time to be alive if you were a German, <laughs> but uh, yep. I drew, drew some conclusions. So. It's like there were two different wars going on, the war in the east and the war in the west. The war in the east was very brutal, and the German soldier fought very hard. In the west, after the Battle of the Bulls, German morale collapsed. This was their last chance offensive. It was defeated, and they knew they were uh, going to be beaten. And in the west, uh, the German soldier had a reasonable expectation of coming out of it alive if he surrendered. Um, The Americans probably weren't going to shoot him. He was going to be in prison maybe for a year or two. But um, he would eventually get back home. Uh, No such expectation existed in the East. Many Germans were executed. Uh, Gosh, a lot of Germans were kept in prison until 1955. The war ended in 45. Um, And they would never have been released, I don't think, had it not been for their chancellor, Konrad Adenauer. Um, they had negotiations, um, and I thought it was Adenauer's type of negotiator. But the deal was, the United States would recognize East Germany, which desperately needed our our foreign exchange, and uh, Russia would recognize West Germany, and that was the basic agreement until about three days before. And the Heiden, said, Oh, by the way, if you don't return all our prisoners to Germany, uh, the deal's off. Well, the Russians didn't like that one bit because, um, you know, that's, that is pulling a new demand right out of thin air from their point of view. But Eisenhower. uh, was like I say, he's a great negotiator. They tell you in business, don't be afraid to walk away. He walked away, and the Russians uh, uh, capitulated. And that's when the last German soldiers came home. Uh, they would have been there till they died, I think, uh, had it not been Fodenha. What
0: were what were Hitler's what were Hitler's chances prior to the Battle of the Bulge?
1: How did it look prior to the Battle of the Bulge? Um, I think uh, if uh, the Germans had repulsed the Normandy invasion, uh, you could a reasonable man could uh, come up with a scenario uh, where Nazi Germany, if it didn't win the war, could at least survive it. After uh, Normandy, um, well, according to Field Marshal Model, who commanded Army Group B on the, the major Army Group on the Western Front. Uh, The chances were down to about 10%. And, of course, he launched uh, the Battle of the Bulge, and after that, the 10% was gone. That was their last chance offensive. Uh, I wouldn't dispute the 10% figure Model gave. Um, I think if uh, best-case scenario for Germany, if they'd captured uh, Antwerp, they would have uh, had a couple of, Panzer armies freed, which they could use somewhere else. Uh, The war certainly would have lasted another year. Um, But when the bulls failed in the West, it was time to go home. And history bears that out. I mean, shortly thereafter, the um, bridge at Remagen was captured. And while that didn't have a great deal of military significance, it was uh, uh, psychologically devastating for the Germans, because the Rhine line had been breached, Uh, there was no hope at that point. And uh, the following month, uh, we had uh, the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket, which was one of the most lopsided uh, victories in American military history. Uh, We captured over 300,000 Germans, uh, soldiers. Uh, at a cost of 1,700 casualties. Military terms, that's uh, that's lopsided. And it ripped a 200-mile uh, hole in the German front. There was no way. They had nothing left to cover it with. That's, a, that's east, an
0: undertold story, the Battle of the Roar Pocket. That's an undertold story, I think. Can you give a quick synopsis of that?
1: Well, yeah. Uh, we breached the Rhine in uh, two major locations north of Remagen. Uh, and encircled them with uh, using three American armies. And uh, we trapped uh, the uh, German 15th Army and the uh, 5th Panzer Army in the Ruhr, which was a major German industrial area. And without the Ruhr, Germany could not wage war. Uh, We surrounded it. And uh, that's when you began to have mass surrenders. Um, How many months after Market Garden was that? Eight months. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Market Garden, of course, was a uh, uh, well. It, it, it was doable, but uh, the odds against it succeeding were were small. Um,
0: and it depended upon but, the, it depended upon the the progress and cooperation of both sides. And uh, I think the Americans felt like they they paid their dollar, but the but Britain fell short. I don't know if you agree with that assessment and that's not the subject of your book, but we did a two part episode on that. There was a lot of frustration.
1: Well, you know what they say? The only thing uh, worse than fighting with allies is uh, fighting without allies. Yeah. And uh, I think that was uh, true. The, um, actually it was a very bold move on the part of Montgomery. who's a man that you don't often associate with the word bold, but, uh, the problem was uh, they expected an average reaction time from the Germans. And they did not realize that Field Marshal Model, commanding the major army group on the Western Front, had his headquarters two miles from the British drop zone. Mm-hmm. Yep. He didn't have to rely on reports from subordinate commanders. Uh, he looked out his window and saw them. The <laughs> reaction time was uh, incredibly rapid, uh, and uh, the British just got unlucky. I mean, uh, luck plays a, a part in war, and uh, they just didn't have any in, at, at Arnhem.
0: There's been a lot of stories about the Battle of the Bulge, but your story right now is well-researched and covers a time period from the Battle of Bulge to the actual f- fall of of the actual fall of Hitler's regime, which makes it very, very interesting and compelling. Can you give us an overview of what happened during that time from the end of the Battle of the Bulge to the actual fall of the regime?
1: Well, we've kind of covered it on the Western Front. You had the bridge at Remagen, the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket, and the collapse of the German uh, war machine in the West. In the East, it was quite different. The Germans never had a chance at this point. Uh, in January 1945, they uh, they had 1.8 million soldiers on the Eastern Front. Stalin had seven million. Uh, uh, they were outnumbered uh, in every conceivable mi- military category, at least five to one. Well, except brains. They did have some great generals. The Russians, uh, when they made their major breakthrough uh, for miles and miles, had an artillery density of 420 guns per mile. Uh, It was tremendous bombardment. Uh, Stalin uh, figured uh, he would be in Berlin in three or four days once the offensive started. It took him over two weeks. Uh, They had a, well, my point about the good German generals, the commander of Army Group Vistola was a guy named Henricke. And he he had a... uh, what the Germans called a fingertip feel for the battle. And he had a reputation on the Eastern Front for always pulling out just before the major uh, battle. And he would draw his front line a mile or two. And the major Russian artillery bombardment, which they depended, uh, missed. It missed its target. Well, it happened again. Uh, when Stalin uh, launched his uh, major offensive in the east. uh, and Ricky had pulled out the night before. Uh, Artillery bombardment hit thin air. And then it was muddy. Uh, They had to go through their own shell craters, and many of their tanks got stuck in the mud. And the Germans went forward. They had this uh, great, um, uh, kind of resembles a log, except better. It was called the Panzerfaust, a single shot shoulder-fired, disposable anti-tank weapon. And they knocked out a lot of Russian tanks. And uh, uh, Henrique did everything right, but he could not hold Berlin. And I don't think he meant to. Uh, He left four divisions in Berlin, but it was more a contested mop-up operation than it was a a major battle. Uh, By then, the, the Germans were retreating. The Hitler played into their hands, too. He sent most of his panzers to Hungary, and they had a big battle over at Budapest in that area. But uh, in the east, uh, uh, like uh, Army Group Vistula was supported by 6th Air Fleet, it only had 300 airplanes, and most of those weren't fighters. Russians committed 10,000 airplanes to the battle. He never had a chance in the long run, and he knew it, Um, and once um, it became convenient, uh, he abandoned Berlin. He knew knew it was over.
0: You utilized rarely seen before German wartime documents to help you write the death of Hitler's war machine. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered in your research?
1: Oh, I suppose uh, it would have been the naval evacuation. Uh, they evacuated East Prussia and Pomerania by sea. Um, I guess I should start that out by saying um, this is pretty good proof that terrorism is often counterproductive because the Russians um, were allowing their uh, men to rape, pillage, murder. Uh, there was no punishment for this. Matter of fact, their propaganda encouraged it. And it created a mass evacuation situation. But also the uh, field guard, the uh, German equivalent of the GI or the British Tommy, fought um, like the Dickens because he wanted to protect his home, his family, um, his country. And uh, he knew um, that he likely wouldn't survive. And he had nothing to lose. And people who don't have anything to lose are dangerous. Um, I talk about in my book about uh, General Naring. He was one of Rommel's commanders in North Africa, commanded the Africa Corps before he was wounded. Uh, He commanded the 24th Panzer Corps, which was totally surrounded. Now, if it had been on the Western Front, the Germans would have just surrendered, but not, uh, not on the East. And he uh, was being attacked by seven Russian armies. Uh, uh, An army usually has three corps. He was outnumbered at least 10 to 1. But he held his position and actually moved that pocket all the way across East Prussia. And um, escaped. Got back to uh, German lines. I I thought that was the most... uh, amazing tactical uh, maneuver in World War II.
0: Definitely, readers, uh, that's
1: one thing you want to catch up on. Make a note. (laughs) Yeah, and um, uh, when he got to German lines, there were more civilians inside the pocket than soldiers on the outside, on the the edge of it. Uh, He had more civilians than soldiers when he finally got there. Brilliant trick. I've always thought Nering was the uh, best tank commander in World War II, including Rommel and Patton. just a personal view. Another uh, surprising thing, uh, you know, sometimes as a story and you get lucky, and I got a hold of a copy of uh, Hitler's uh, doctor's medical journal, the case file of Adolf Hitler, and it had a lot of drugs listed, uh, actually an incredible amount of drugs, but I didn't know what they were, and I took it to a cousin of mine who's a medical doctor. He'd been a practicing physician for 40 years. He said, said, Sandy, I don't know what these drugs are. Many of them haven't been manufactured since the 40s or 1950s. But I had a fishing buddy uh, whose daughter was owner of a medical corporation. She did heart transplants herself and had doctors working under her. And uh, she'd do anything for her daddy. And uh, he asked her to research these drugs. And uh, uh, she had members of her staff do it, and it would have cost me a $100,000 if I had to do it, pay for it myself. I couldn't have done it, <laughs> but um, I got it for free, <laughs> and uh, the conclusions were Hitler had a vitamin toxicity. Many of these drugs were vitamins, and he was overdosing himself on vitamins. Uh, they estimated he wouldn't have lived but a year or two, uh, if even if he hadn't committed suicide. With the Russians, 300 yards away, he also uh, was addicted to amphetamines or speed, and the act. And this is what blew me away: the active ingredient in his eye drops was cocaine. He took up to 19 applications of eye drops per day, three or four drops in each eye. So uh, uh, he. I think this partially explains some of his irrational behavior.
0: See, <laughs> of... it does. He was hooked on cocaine, yeah, maybe not knowing it.
1: it. Yeah, of course, I'm not sure that anybody back then knew what cocaine was, but uh, uh, they knew Hitler knew he liked it. I think, and I think that partially explains his irrational behavior. Sometimes uh, he was ordering attacks by armies that didn't exist. One day he'd be at the height of euphoria, we're going to win the war, the next day, up the depths of depression. Sometimes in the same conversation. Uh, General Velding commanded the uh, 56th Panzer Corps. He came to Führer headquarters, and the first words out of Hitler's mouth was, Velding, I'm going to have you shot. And... By the end of the interview, Hitler was quite friendly to Belding, and named him Commandant of Berlin. (laughs) And after Belding left the room, he turned to another general and said, I would rather he had had me shot. (laughs) He uh, was captured in Berlin and died in a Russian prison camp nine years later. Hmm.
0: We'll return to our interview with author Sam Mitchum right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our interview. Why was the Soviet siege of Budapest called the Stalingrad of the Waffen SS? What happened there?
1: Uh, They put in some of their best units uh, the 8th and 22nd uh, SS cavalry divisions. They also uh, put in some non divisional units, they put in an entire SS corps, as well as the uh, Army's 13th. uh, Panzer Division and uh, Frieden Hall, uh, 60th uh, Panzer Division, and they fought house to house and hand to hand. These boys put up a tremendous resistance. Started out with 33,000 men. Uh, They finally tried to break out at the very end, Uh, and there were uh, 800 of them left. They inflicted a lot of casualties on the Russians. But after that, the southern part of the eastern front fell apart quickly, and they managed to take uh, Vienna with little loss. Um, They made their stand at Budapest. And once again, Hitler, uh, just like he did at Stalingrad, refused to allow a timely breakout because they could have. And they could have done it at Stalingrad. Oh, it would have been costly, but you'd have saved the army. And the SS Panzer Corps there would have uh, gotten out, too. Uh, German SS morale was pretty much broken uh, at Budapest, and was certainly broken uh, at Vienna, because um, Hitler uh, stripped some of the top SS uh Panzer divisions of the honor told they could not wear the Adolf Hitler uh, cuff band because they were cowards. And whatever you say about the SS, they were not cowards. They would fight you. And uh, that's when Zepp Dietrich, who was former chauffeur and bodyguard to Adolf Hitler, uh, uh, had his officers put all the medals in a chamber pot. And uh, he uh, sent them uh, to Hitler with a cuff band uh, from um, uh, the, the uh, 17th SS Panzergripadadier division, the, the Goetz uh, division. And uh, in Wegener's uh, opera there, uh, Goetz uh, said to the bishop, kiss my ass. And that was the message Dietrich was sending to Hitler. Uh, I don't think Hitler ever got that. Um, uh, he would have he would have understood it had he received the chamber pot, but I think uh somebody at Fair Headquarters uh uh did not pass that message along to the Fuhrer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a good thing.
0: Probably a good thing. Uh yeah, that's one of those missing things, the chamber pot full of metals. I know people would love to know where that is. I have a question for you. It has nothing to do at all with this. Well it does in a way. Uh any idea where the where the skull rings are? when they all turned in their skull rings. I heard they were, the, the rumor is that they were buried in a mountain. Do you know anything about that
1: one? Uh, just the rumors. Yep. Uh, there are all kinds of rumors, uh, as you know. Uh, Hitler lived, uh, Bigfoot's been kidnapped by outer space monsters and <laughs> things like this.
0: Uh, yep. You can hear anything. Well, I'll ask you an easier question, Sandy. What kind of fishing do you do
1: and where do you do it? Oh, I haven't been fishing in a long time, but uh, Louisiana's full of bayous. I usually fish for white perch. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. sir. Delicious fish, and catfish is good if it's not a, a bottom feeder. Uh, last time I had catfish, it was um, uh, call them mud cats. They uh, if they feed in the bottom, the the meat tastes like mud. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Yep. If you get that at a restaurant, send it back. They, they, uh, you won't like it. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I anyway. met a—the last Louisianan I met said—we uh, were talking about the weather, the weather where I live. I live here at Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's not perfect, but at least we're not getting snow right now. I'm real happy about that, but most of the Northeast is. But he said Louisiana is wetter than dog's mouth.
1: Oh, it, it definitely is. And I'll tell you something about Louisianians— so. Uh, in a hurricane, uh, they're like the 300 Spartans. Uh, in 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 icy weather, snow, <laughs> they're like the cowardly lions yeah. the Wizard of Oz. It's the same thing here around Norfolk, Virginia. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we uh, they they said we might get snow Monday, and uh, I got a call from a, I had a doctor's appointment Monday, a routine checkup, I put it off to friday because of the snow it ain't snowed <laughs> it probably <laughs> won't but uh they're already heading for the hills the doctor's canceling his appointments so. they
0: don't get too many snow days so i imagine everybody who could was taking that day off though so. a good yeah, excuse
1: yeah, the little rock democrat had a cartoon got, i still got it somewhere it's kind of funny it's a picture of a mob of people in panic, you know, hiding the children, danger, and there's one snowflake coming <laughs> <kind of> down. <dead. laughs> yep. Yeah, that's about right. Your book, your one book thing doesn't... I cover in the book uh, uh. I do want to mention uh, was that naval evacuation. East Prussia had uh, 3 million people, and between East Prussia and Pomerania, the German Navy evacuated 2,022,000 uh, people. And um, a result of terror, the Russians were strafing the uh, refugee columns, uh, uh, ran over a couple of them with their tanks. But um, it created uh, some of the greatest naval disasters in history, including the greatest naval disaster, the Wilhelm Gustloff. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was a cruise liner, ship through joy, a strength through joy cruise liner. It was rated for 1,800 people.
0: Wasn't that transporting refugees out
1: or not? Yeah. They put 10,580 people on it, and the temperature was zero degrees Fahrenheit. And they had ice flows in the Baltic Sea. 25 miles offshore, the Russians torpedoed the ship, and it went down 45 minutes and uh, only 1,259 people survived.
0: Out of (coughs) 10,000 plus, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah. so over 8,000 people died. (coughs) Um, And uh, that's five times the number killed on the Titanic. Yeah.
0: It's rumored the Amber Room was uh, in the hold of that ship. There's a rumor out there. We did a story on the Amber Room, the Russian Amber Room, and it was disassembled. and they say that uh, it had been tracked by rail to the port where that ship went out, and that there were witnesses who saw them uh, taking those crates uh, up onto the ship, and that it was in the hold of that ship. That's just a rumor, but
1: you know how those work. I, yeah, I've never heard that. Uh, they uh, that ship was crammed to the gills with people. That was the the big thing with. I don't. See where they would have had much room for cargo. Uh, they um,
0: uh, your book your book does a good job on the uncovering on the loss of the air war, 1943 and 44. And uh, other than other than Hitler uh, deciding to go after Russia, losing his air force was probably I'm going to guess his losing the Luftwaffe was probably a deciding factor, if not the deciding factor in their losing the war.
1: Would you agree yeah, on that? Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, the German Luftwaffe was um, not properly constructed anyway. It was basically flying artillery for the Army. It never did have a strategic bomber like uh, RB-17. And once they lost the Battle of Britain uh, and committed the uh, Luftwaffe to the Eastern Front, um uh, it steadily went downhill, they also lost their fuel, and uh, think about it, you got to train those pilots. In 1945, the average uh, German pilot uh, had about 50 hours flight training before he went into combat. The average RAF pilot, fighter pilot had 400, and the average American had 450. So uh, we had much better trained pilots. The Germans did have what they call their old eagles, and these guys shot down tons of uh, airplanes. But they have been also been fighting for five years; fatigue had set in. I mean, uh, at the end, the the Germans had a joke: we were blowing away their cities so badly. Uh, The joke was the American Air Force, if it continues. Uh, bombing German cities is just going to have to start bringing its own targets because there isn't anything left to hit. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of truth. Uh, By February 45, we were just rearranging rubble in many cases. Do you have a favorite short story from the book that you'd like to share? It was a girl I knew. Uh, she was a woman then. Uh, she was a little girl in East Prussia. Her daddy had been killed on the Eastern Front. And her mom wanted to get out of there before the Russians got in there, because they were raping every girl from 8 to 80. And the problem is, she had no shoes. I mean, you and I, uh, if if our shoes are worn out, we can make them last another year if we have to. But it doesn't work that way with kids, because their feet grow so darn fast. Well... Um, She had to get her out of there without shoes, so she took her feet and stuck them in cow patties, cow manure, and let them solidify and did it again and again and again. And my friend had uh, cow patty shoes, and she walked all the way across East Prussia, the Danzig Corridor, Pomerania, and half of Brandenburg in these cow patty shoes Wow! and had... uh, No health repercussions whatsoever. They reached British lines. She later married an American soldier and uh, was retired up at uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, last I saw of her. But uh, I thought that was pretty innovative.
0: That's an amazing amazing story. But so many incredible stories come out of World
1: War II. Yeah, there really are some good ones there was another one I didn't put it in the book but I thought you might enjoy it there was this woman who uh, noticed there was no no clothes for anybody everything went to the army and the Germans ran out of textiles their bandages were even made out of paper toward the end but uh, she wanted a new dress well there's no way to get any material for a new dress but she noticed there was always enough material for Nazi party flags so she went to the uh, uh, Gauleiter and uh, said, I would like a party flag to decorate my home. Oh, yes, ma'am. They gave her one. Went to the Crestlighter. I need a uh, uh, a party flag to decorate my home. Oh, yes, ma'am. Here's another. Uh, she went to the Burgermeister. She went to the Vierkreis office. Uh, she went to about six different agencies. Every one of them gave her a big flag. And she actually put one of them out in front of her home. She took the other five, cut them up, and made herself a really nice red dress. <laughs> and, uh, she was the only one in her town who had a new dress. And of course, everybody asked her, where'd you get the dress from? Well, she told them the truth and it shot her. Uh, but what she said was, uh, oh, I ordered this material before the war and I didn't like it. And I put it in uh, a chest and put it in my attic and forgot about it. So I was cleaning out my attic the other day, and I came across it. I said, well, this really doesn't look too bad. Uh, so that's where I got the material for my dress. Uh, <laughs> pretty innovative. Uh, they knew how to beat the system, just like some people in our country do. Pretty good humor about it all. Uh, you know, of course, as you know, Germans love beer. And... Um, I had a joke about the guy who decided well uh, they had watered down the beer and changed the ingredients so he uh, he poured some of it in the test tube sent it to the university uh, their equivalent of the agricultural extension service <clears throat> about three weeks later he got a report back and it says your horse has diabetes
0: <laughs> yep
1: They were uh, a lot of humor uh, around, but I guess uh, it was gallows humor in a way because they needed the things for them falling apart. One of the, one of the jokes was, "Enjoy the war because the peace is going to be horrible." The east. The, sp- the split
0: up after the war, when Russia was allowed to pretty much occupy Poland and a good part of the east there was a, a terrible time for those countries, and uh, a lot of people felt that uh, that Roosevelt made, made a mistake th- by giving away way too much to the Soviet Union. Uh,
1: what do you think about that well uh, he did he uh, uh, i 'm not sure he had any choice by that time. They waited till uh, almost the end of the war to make the final agreement. Uh, had he made the agreement say in uh, 1942 when the issue was in doubt, uh, he could have gotten a better deal. Uh, waiting till the end of 44 was uh, was too late. Matter of fact, uh, uh, 42, Hitler, uh, Stalin would have done pretty much whatever we uh, we wanted to to make an agreement. Uh, He made a public statement that American troops were welcome anywhere on the Eastern Front they cared to serve. Uh, He didn't like our tanks, but uh, they loved our uh, trucks. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, for many years after the war, into the 1950s, the word Studebaker was a synonym for truck in Russia. They had so many, millions. Uh, They had the best trucks that uh, money could that Detroit could manufacture. Now, uh, they didn't care for our tanks. The Sherman was inferior to, uh, certainly, the uh, Panther. And uh, I would say the Tiger as well. Um, I think the uh, Panzer Mark IV, the uh, Panther tank, was the Germans considered that their best tank. the Tiger was a fine tank, except uh, it tended to break down. It wasn't mechanically as reliable as the uh, Panther. And it had a, uh, the turret had an extremely slow turn ratio. It took forever to get the big gun around. And when you got it around, it created a mess. But uh, uh, five or six uh, Shermans could take it on and uh, beat it to death. Uh, the, the Panther was uh, was better according to the Panzer Troop and I talked to. You've written
0: a lot of books on World War II and you are considered an expert on World War II Germany. A- at the end of the war as current thinking goes, Russia and the United States and Great Britain s- split up somehow Russia's catch of secret weapons what do you know about what happened there and who got what and how that led to uh, future technology warfare technology that was used after world war
1: II? uh was one of their major bases it was in the east uh the russians got it the russians were astonished uh we took one of their major uh the germans uh v weapons uh depositories and laboratories and uh, it was in the Soviet zone, but it was the end of the war. The Americans had captured this sector and we simply pulled out and they got the weapons and uh, they were astonished that we had not destroyed them. What was the name of that uh, base or research facility? Uh Schweinmuck, It's uh, now part of Poland. And, uh, Oh, oh, the the V-weapons. I forgot the name of the V-weapons depository. It was a cave. It wasn't really a settlement. But uh, uh, Schmier, the uh, Minister of Munitions, was really good at putting caves to use. Uh, They made uh, natural uh, uh, anti-aircraft bunkers uh, because they could take a hit uh, uh, from a B-17 and not... Uh, crash like a building would, Uh, and they had caves full of these things, V-1, V-2, they work in a V-3, and we just left them for the Russians. We uh, were a little naive, just honestly. We uh, gave up more than we needed to. Our leadership did. We,
0: we did a two-part story here at 1001 Heroes on the Jetloff Pass. I don't know if you ever heard of that. On what was called the Jetloff Pass, it was a story of Russia. Uh, this was uh, late 50s. And a group of, uh, I believe it was about 12 uh, college students, long, ter- long country skiers, a club, went out into the Urals. And uh, they were all found dead months later. Uh, they, had some, they had some leadership and skilled people. As they, they weren't neophytes to being out in the snow in the winter. Um, but they were found violently, violently killed. Uh, they, they were able to recover their cameras and some of the film uh, and could never figure out, based on the bodily injuries, exactly what happened to them. So there's, it's still under trial today in Russia. The Russia, only thing is that Russia won't allow anything, any mention of the Russian military or their experiments in these trials that are going on now. And if you research it and look into it, it looks like uh, these these college kids ran into weapons testing of some sort that was used against them.
1: Their weapons Not testing. Not when in particular, I do know uh, when uh, West Germany absorbed East Germany, uh, they found out that uh, uh, East Germany was a toxic dump. Uh, they didn't take precautions with weapons or any environmental considerations whatsoever. And repairing East Germany uh, environmentally was tremendously expensive for West Germany. It's one of the reasons. Uh, um, oh, there was some problems with them getting back together because the uh, the, the differences uh, caused by the uh, Russian occupation. Uh, they had to clean up this mess. It cost billions of dollars. And uh, it, uh, I think, legitimized the uh, discrimination. I mean, the first thing that happened when the wall fell down was about what you would expect. The West German uh, bachelors and their Mercedes uh, drove into East Germany and began picking up East German girls, some of whom had never ridden in a car. And that, that was funny. But uh, then later, they started discriminating against them in employment. Uh, in America, it would result in major lawsuits, but uh, East Germans would apply for jobs, and they would offer them about one quarter of the salary of somebody from West Germany. And East Germans would ask them about it, and um, they'd say, well, you're an East German, you're used to less. And the, uh, the, uh, they didn't even have to ask them where they were from. They could look at their clothes.
0: Mm-hmm. until they were
1: east because they kind of look like Midwestern flood victims. Uh, and uh, the, the, the two uh, sides, and I could see the East German uh, point of view. Uh, if you're an East German, you've got a job. It doesn't pay much, but it's yours. you got a little apartment. It's not much, but it's yours. And uh, the wall falls, and uh, here comes a West German and a Mercedes, and he looks through building and say, so, yeah, that was uh, my great grandfather's. When the Soviets came, it's mine now. You got thirty days to get out, and or pay an exorbitant rent by East German standards. And uh, um, yeah, I, I could see where there'd be some friction. And this was not a smooth transition. It could have been worse, but uh, it could have been better. There was a lot of resentment because of the bondings. Um, I remember I ran into a tour guide back in Cologne many, many years ago, and he was talking about the cathedral there and how God protected the cathedral and because everything else was blown away, and there was this field of rubble, but the cathedral was not hit. Well, <clears throat> uh, God may have had something to do with that, but not in the manner he thought, because uh, the U.S. Army made the cathedral the turning point. You want to bomb Cologne, you go fly over the cathedral, turn 160 degrees, fly for four four seconds, and you're over your target. It was a turning marker, and you don't attack your turning marker. And that's why the cathedral at Cologne survived. Uh, (laughs) But uh, there were all kinds of stories. The uh, firebombing of Dresden, for example, was uh, pretty horrible. Uh, uh, there were more than twice as many people killed in that one raid on Dresden as were killed in the entire Battle of Britain. Uh, we don't. There were refugees there. It was uh, at least a hundred thousand people died, but probably more like hundred twenty-five thousand. And you could see the fireball 200 miles away. The asphalt, the asphalt on the street, uh, caught on fire. Asphalt burns at 750 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, it was worse than uh, one of the atomic attacks on Japan. If the assassination attempt on Hitler had been successful,
0: do you believe the war would have continued?
1: That so, pretty good hypothetical question. Um, yeah, I think it would have. Um, it was uh, July. We were the D-Day invasion had already succeeded. Um, Russia by then uh, didn't have to negotiate. Most people don't realize it, but in 1943, shortly after the Battle of Stalingrad, they had secret Soviet-Nazi uh, negotiations. Uh, Stalin was willing to make peace, but uh, his condition was Germany had to give up all the territory it had occupied, and Hitler wouldn't buy it. Um, by 44, it was pretty obvious uh, after D-Day that it wasn't going to end well for Nazi Germany. I don't. I think there would have been a negotiated peace with the. Uh, 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 conspirators, government, General Beck, but uh, a lot of people would have lived who, who, who in fact, perished later, but uh, I don't see much difference in the result in terms of territorial uh, expansion. Uh, I think uh, Stalin would have got what he wanted.
0: What was it that uh, Dietrich once said about his Panzer VI? Uh,
1: Dietrich? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he was talking about. It. Dietrich commanded the Sixth uh, Panzer Army, later the Sixth uh, SS Panzer Army. And uh, Dietrich had a good sense of humor. He he, uh, uh, he said that uh, they call us uh, Panzer Only sex, the German uh, pronunciation of it, because we only have six panzers left. Uh, <laughs> Dietrich was, um, for a Nazi, a very interesting fellow. Even at the end of the war, when a German soldier deserted, it actually took time before he would sign an execution order. At this point in the war, the army uh, generals were just, you know, if somebody deserted, confirm the sentence and execute them. But uh, Dietrich would have uh, would meet with a person. He met with this kid. Uh, he uh, his Father had died when he was a child. He was spoiled by his mother. He lived with his mother and his aunts. He lived in a feminine environment. And he was about 15, 16 years old. Got drafted to the German army and uh, sent to a panzer unit. And uh, they were mean to him. But at least he felt they were. They, uh, you know, they'd be, veterans sometimes are tough on the newbies. And he deserted. Well, he got caught. And, um, uh, they brought him into Zep Dietrich, and he told his tale of misery. And uh, Dietrich uh, got up and uh, gave him an earboxing. Uh, German officers were allowed to do that. It's, uh, they're pretty tough because they're designed to make, break an eardrum. They, they really hit you. And um, he did. He hit him in the head, gave him a, uh, uh, nullified the death sentence. Gave him a 30-day leave, said so go home, and when you come back, you'd be ready to be a soldier. Uh, get yourself together emotionally and come back and serve us correctly. And he did, and this guy became a decent soldier. And uh, later, uh those big Germans, you know, drinks a lot of beer and goes bowling and that sort of thing. But uh, you couldn't say anything bad about Zeb Dietrich in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I don't blame him. Uh, he was, uh, uh, Dietrich was uh, uh, sort of an enigma. He, uh, you never knew what you were going to get with that Dietrich. Sam Mitchum
0: Jr., thank you so much for this book and for all of you've done to bring history to a lot of
1: people. And well, where can people you.
0: find your book?
1: All they can find it at uh, Regner History, uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, any uh, bookstore would either have it or be able to order it for you. Uh, but a lot of people get it stuff from Amazon these days.
0: And for all you listeners, the book is "The Death of Hitler's War Machine" by Sam W. Mitchum Jr. Sam, thanks for being with us here at One Thousand One Heroes. We appreciate it very much, and we hope to talk to you uh, next book out.
1: Can, oh yeah, I've got another one coming out. I'm Can you tell us what you're on working deal. on? On the Confederate generals.
0: Ah, very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure having the chance to talk to you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Sure.